everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Untickled, and I have been telling my story there of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in 2011. I write my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And never mind all that intro business, let's just get to the show, because I've been waiting to talk to Ellie. I'm so excited to have Ellie Strong, the co-creator and former co-host of the Bubble Hour, is here to give us an update, and I'm so excited to have her. Ellie, welcome home. Thank you. Oh, it's so exciting to be here. It's great to talk to you and to check in. Thank you very much for the opportunity to do that. I appreciate it. Oh, well, I've missed your voice, and I know our listeners have too. Um, before I was part of the show, I was in early sobriety, walking my dog for hours and hours on end, and your voice was just the voice of reason that, that uh-huh. soothed me so much, Ellie, and let me know that I could do this. And I am forever grateful to you for that and paying it forward by trying to hold space so other people can do the same thing for each other. And uh, I just my gratitude to you is is just enormous so I'm so happy oh, to have a chance you. to talk to you again thank you for saying that I will I will reciprocate only in saying I'm so grateful that the bubble hour is continuing and flourishing in your extraordinarily capable hands and that you're carrying the torch and doing such an amazing job so thank you ah oh, it's my pleasure my pleasure and my honor it's been a oh. really neat part of our lives I think for both of us and and certainly for guests I mean there's something you know there's something kind of happening in the universe in the recovery world i just feel like there's sort of a an energy at play that we're lucky to have sort of gotten swirled into it and had a turn oh. a turn in the in the um in the dance i guess <laughs> yeah that way? yep i do yeah i agree i think well, that there's been... oh sorry go right ahead here we here we are. You and I always step on each other because we're both <laughs> just such little chatterboxes. <laughs> I know, I know. Okay. I want to hear what you have to say. Tell me what you were going to say. Well, I was going to say I think that it's really interesting to sort of watch the evolution of the way um, people talk about recovery, the way they talk about drinking, the way they talk about it's become sort of I think a more accessible topic to more people, and it was it's, it was pretty amazing evolution to be sort of part of the early on back in like 2008 2009 like the blogging movement and then people got a hold of other mediums like podcasts and other forums and it's there there's a there's an abundance of really good ones now and it's just it's encouraging to me to to see that because the more discourse there is the more people can can be helped and I think it's amazing you know I I feel like there was a time in my life when I probably when I wasn't well, and uh, I would have been kind of competitive and protective about whatever project I was doing. Mm. Uh, and I'm really glad that that the, you know, the healing that recovery does lets us acknowledge the abundance and not have to sink into that yeah. sort of petty competitiveness and know that the more the merrier and the more people that talk and put things out there like this or like the you know the new things that come up um, yeah the better right I mean this Absolutely. isn't uh, yeah it's not pie you know we're not fighting over a, a finite amount of of goodness here it's just it, it seems to replenish itself it's pretty exciting it does. and the more perspectives and viewpoints and opinions and in, insights and advice that people share I mean I learn things every day from people that I follow online and talk to in person it's that's how it's done it's really a beautiful thing so what what would you say has changed the most for have you have you seen things like do you identify things that really feel different uh in the last, you know, few years since you've been out of the weekly podcasting gig? Well, I I mean, I, there's like sort of the logistical element to it where I feel as though if somebody, I mean, it's a very common, I'll back up for a second. I think it's a very common thread that I hear a lot of people who are in the sort of contemplation phase with their drinking or using or, you know, trying to, the am I or aren't I questions that we ask ourselves. And everybody talks about Googling, you know, getting online and saying, you know, am I an alcoholic if I do this? Or what are the top signs of alcoholism? Or taking endless numbers of quizzes. And I mean, at least that's how I, that's how I sort of stuck a toe in the water to kind of, kind of safely and, and privately 
contemplate where I stood in the scheme of things. I, I had an inkling that there was a problem, but I, you know, I was still desperate to normalize it somehow. And there really wasn't a lot out there that wasn't sort of saying dramatically, yes, you're an alcoholic and this is what you have to do to get sober. Or there's a whole spectrum of resources out there for people at any point in the process, whether, you know, whether or not they have a, an addiction problem or, um, might think they're an alcoholic has become way less relevant to, you know, I want to live a healthier, more enriched, more in tune life. And the label is becoming increasingly irrelevant. And I, I love that because I think that's what brings people together instead of separating them from each other. It's about wellness and it's about recovery as a topic, not recovery as a, as a, you know, I don't know, a life sentence or a, an antidote to a diagnosis. It's just, an empowerment and embetterment movement that I really, I think that um, recovery is becoming a part of. And I think it's great because it just, it broadens the spectrum of people who feel like that's something that's attractive to them. Tell us a little bit about your story. Go back a little bit for me, Ellie. I, um, I, I doubt we have very many listeners who don't know your voice, but in case someone's just starting out on new episodes and, um, wants to get to know you a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your story. And then listeners, I'll tell you, I'm, I know that you're going to fall in love with Ellie in this hour if you aren't already. <laughs> and um, if you go back into our archives, you know, the first four or five seasons are are just full of Ellie uh, as a host. And um, you'll get to know her very well through those episodes. But So give us, give us like the elevator story. <laughs> No, sure. Yeah, an elevator story, like you know, on a hundred hundred story building, like five minutes in the elevator. Exactly. I'll see how <laughs> see how concise I can be and still still be relevant, and meaningful. Um, well, I, you know, the early part of my story is a as a middle class childhood with an intact family and a nice leafy suburb outside of Boston, and um, you know, good student, good athlete, very motivated. Um, really sort of from the outside looking in, my life looked really pretty vanilla and pretty standard. And um, But I felt from a really, really early age other than and different than. And um, that I, you know, I just really had uh, no sense of self. And I, I really, from, from as long as I can remember, I considered myself a shapeshifter, you know, a chronic people pleaser. Even as a kid, I, it was really important to me that I was accepted and loved and had a lot of fear of abandonment and fear of, of um, rejection. And so I, I think a lot of my good schoolwork and my performance and athletics and other things, and even as growing into adulthood and getting jobs, it was really sort of always important to me how people responded to me, you know, that if it was an acceptable school to go to, is it an acceptable job to have? Is it a, it really nothing came from the inside of me and flowed out. I was just desperate for validation and approval and doing the right things and, you know, it mixed with a healthy dose of perfectionism and really high standards for myself and being pretty pretty hard on myself my whole life and feeling like I didn't measure up. Um all the while projecting a sort of an outward veneer of a lot of sort of confidence, not not overconfidence, but just capable, a capable sort of aura. Um, I don't think anybody would have thought that I was an anxious person or an insecure person or somebody who had extreme doubts about my place in the world and my own identity. If anything, I probably came across uh, the opposite of that. And what I'm understanding looking back on, you know, going into young adulthood and even marriage and having kids is that the sort of the gap between how I felt on the inside and what I looked like on the outside, not just my own physical appearance, but just what my life looked like on the outside was growing increasingly far apart and sort of my sanity and my mental health and my desire to numb and escape, it really sort of fell into that gap of, who I felt I was and who people thought I was. Um, and early, early on, I learned that alcohol made those feelings evaporate. You know, I remember after my first drink of alcohol, I sort of thought to myself, wow, this must be how normal people feel. The anxiety disappeared, the, the desperateness to be accepted disappeared, the confidence showed up. And 
for the really healthy portion of my early life, all the way, all the way through probably my early 30s, that was kind of the foundation for my drinking. It was self-medicating. It was my liquid courage. It was my ability to even feel in tune with myself. And I, I mean, I didn't even know how I felt about most things as I had to ask other people for their opinions of how I should feel. I mean, I really did not have a strong identity and um, all that went away when I drank. And um, so, you know, all the way through college and my 20s and even early 30s, I was a, an enthusiastic, quote unquote, social drinker, the person who found a reason to be out every night so that I could drink alcohol. And, um, you know, it was really just there, not a day went by where I didn't drink. I was absolutely a daily drinker from probably age, I don't know, 20 on. Um, got married in my early 30s and had children in my mid 30s. And, you know, when the rest at a time when the rest of my peers were kind of stepping up and coming into themselves and becoming successful at whatever they chose to do with their lives and becoming parents, I just looked at everybody and thought, how, how do they make it look so easy? How do they seem so sure of themselves? And motherhood in particular was a really difficult transition for me because you can't people please for an infant or a toddler. You can't, you, you just, I think that the identity, um, the lack of identity that I had really started to come to the surface for me when I became a mom. And I remember looking at my young children and thinking, I feel so bad for them. They got me as a mother. I that I don't know who I am or what I'm doing. And I'm, I, it just, I was really lost and probably was suffering from more depression at the time than I was aware of. Um, and I just drank more and more and I felt more and more guilty for not feeling like a natural parent and not measuring up in all these different ways. And it wasn't long after that kind of drinking where I had to drink just to feel like physically okay. I had crossed that invisible line from what I think of as an emotional addiction to alcohol to a physical addiction to alcohol. And um, it took me a while to even understand that when I woke up in the morning shaking and sweating and having racing panic attacks, that that was in fact a sign of alcohol withdrawal, not just simply the fact that I had anxiety and was an anxious person. And um, probably in my, I don't know, I was 33 or 34 when I had my first drink in the morning when the shakes cleared up and the physical symptoms went away. And uh, my children were about two and five. And I thought to myself, well, I didn't think I should stop drinking. This is a problem. I thought, well, I just need to make sure that I can drink alcohol and have nobody know, and just this is what's holding me together. So it took about two years of pretty much around-the-clock drinking and, you know, concealing it from my loved ones astonishingly well for a while, but when it all came apart, it came apart in a spectacular way. And I went through a series of rehabs and detoxes and treatment centers um, over the course of an entire summer. I was pretty much away for the whole summer and um, finally took a went to a 30-day rehab, and after that, I, I really wanted to try to stay sober, and I thought that it was all about putting alcohol down, and when I found out, it was about a journey inward to figure out who I am and what's, what's acceptable to me in my life and what isn't. Um, I stayed sober for, I think, five or six years. Uh, the first time I got sober, this is after that first round of long-term treatment, and what I can look back and see is that I discovered that there were major things in my life that I was accepting as okay that weren't. Um, I got sober. My husband at the time, he stayed exactly the same as he always was. And the job I had that I didn't like stayed exactly the same as it always was. But my standards for myself started to change. And as I grew as a person and did hard work on myself, the people that were around me just began to seem more and more just very different from me. I didn't share my values. Um, I didn't, I didn't sort of respect what I perceived as a really superficial way of living when I had gotten to know these people in recovery that were just, that's been through so many things and were um, just people that I really respected and admired. So I limped, uh, I, I stayed sober for about the five years, but I didn't make these changes. I had these epiphanies about the fact that perhaps my marriage is not right for me and perhaps this career isn't right for me. I had had the observations about them, but I didn't make any changes. It's scary. Those are scary things to change about yourself. And so um, I sort of, I had awareness without action. 
and I uh, relapsed. I had a pretty spectacular relapse. And at this point, I was very heavily involved in the recovery advocacy world, and I had a popular blog that wrote about recovery, and I was really getting to be sort of well-known, lack of a better word, in the, in the recovery community, and I relapsed. And it was a really difficult and devastating time for me because I thought, who am I to walk around talking about recovery and staying sober? And I drank. And not only did I drink, but I it was a it was a really bad situation. And it was a long journey back from that for me. Um, but it was exactly what needed to happen in many ways, as the universe is prone to do, give us what we need and not what we want. Um, it made me go deeper. It made me explore more that I, it's not just enough to have the awareness of things that aren't um, serving me in my life. There's, there needs to be action around it. And I need a lot of support to make those changes. And I need to be surrounded by people who are, I love enough and trust enough that when they tell me I'm not doing well or that I'm missing something that I will listen and take some constructive criticism for a change. And, cut some things out of my life that were really, really important to me. And one of them was my marriage at the time. And another one was the recovery advocacy work that I do or did and things like the bubble hour and things like the blogging. And I realized that for the first time in my life, I really have to figure out who I am from the inside out and not based on how the world reacts to me or perceives me. And that it's that recovery of any kind is a very sacred personal thing that I had replaced the exterior element of my recovery, you know, sort of the more public element to it with the sanctity of my private recovery. And I was struggling because of it. So I went even sort of further deep in. I went, I I did a lot of really hard work on myself. I had to look really hard at my mental health diagnoses. I had to accept them. I had to accept that I have anxiety. I have to accept that I could. I have depression. I had to really almost surrender to mental health the same way I had surrendered to addiction. Um, I had to aggressively have a practice of wellness and recovery for both, for my mental health, for my, my recovery, for my self-esteem, for my people-pleasing. I mean, it really, I had to make a lot of, of really um, tough changes and, I, after I divorced my husband, I spent a couple of years on my own, just working on myself, and it was not what I wanted, and I was a single mom to two pre-teenagers, and as a part of my my relapse, I had lost a license, so I had no driver's license, and I had some legal trouble, and I was it was not an easy time of my life, but it's probably the most important, formative, um, sort of sacred time for me to sit in myself as myself and learn to love and accept me in my entirety, not just sort of picking and choosing what the world likes or responds to, but what do I like and what sort of life do I want to build? Um, And I won't lie. It was hard. It was a couple of years of of a lot of self-doubt and questioning and um, really carefully picking and choosing who I had sort of in my inner sanctum and my inner circle um, but through that work, I have emerged from at least of the, this point in time. I have a new-ish, I guess, a couple of years now, um, our year. We've been married, husband who's also in recovery and is incredibly supportive of me. And I downsized. I live in a nice little small house, and it's just enough for me. It's not too much. It's not too little. I did decide to start a new marketing business, which is this kind of a dream of mine that I always thought was too impractical um, or perhaps not, you know, doesn't make a big enough splash in the world. I I don't know. There were a lot of exterior motivations that I um, did for the other careers I had, but I finally just planted my flag and did what I wanted to do. And uh, that business is a little over a year old now. And, um, you know, it's, there's, financial worries that plague me and there's there's other issues that I have that are totally surmountable but by and large I am comfortable in my core I know who I am I know what I want and because of this the way my recovery has grown has astonished me I 
you know, I, I stay very connected to the recovery community. I do this in a number of different ways. Um, I do, I'm still active and participating in a 12-step recovery program, but I also have people I know through, you know, mindfulness practice and, and uh, spiritual people and find, just finding different communities that enrich my spirit, that inspire me, and that have brought people into my life that sort of are attracted same kind of flame that I am and I stay pretty quiet online you know I I don't I, I had to realize that in order for me to be grounded and safe within my own self and my own recovery and my own sanity it was important for me um, to focus on making everything just sort of more I mean smaller and and more just sort of I don't know um step out of the public eye, I guess is what I'm, is what I'm getting at. And the ways in which I help people are quieter now and they're one-on-one and in person for the most part. And, um, that's working for me. I sometimes long for a little bit more chaos in my life and I sometimes long for just a little bit more general sort of excitement and travel and the things that I was doing as a part of that world. Um, but I'm able to be kind to it and realize that if it's meant to come back into my life at some point, it it will. And that staying true to myself is the most important thing for me and for my recovery. So that was more than five minutes, but that's the best I could do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, congratulations on your marriage. First of all, Uh, I'm really happy for you and on your business. And um, I uh, stalk you a little on Facebook, too. So I know your kids are growing. And I have to, I have to assume that um, I know my boys are a little bit older. They're, they're in their late 20s. But um, I quit drinking. My youngest son was 14, I think, when I quit drinking. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I was sober through their really important teenage years. And I'm just wondering, you know, how you're finding – that experience being able to be completely present for them i suspect you're glad that you have the extra time just to be there for them i am i'm distracted just not only i mean i'm I'm grateful not only that i'm not distracted by constant sort of need i mean i before i my kids when they were small even when i was sober and newly sober before i just it was like i was avoiding being fully engaged as a mom i don't fully understand the reasons behind that I don't really need to but I just had to fill my life with distractions all the time and it's almost like I replaced one addiction for another in some way in a lot of ways actually so I was emotionally inaccessible inaccessible to them even though I was sober and um, what I what I really feel now is that not only I mean they're 16 and 13 now my son is 13 and my daughter is 16 um, but I feel as though if they probably need me in many important ways now that I I can't um, imagine not being fully present for. I just I I I really have a lot of gratitude around how complicated the world is for teenagers now and how vigilant parents need to be in so many different ways and for me that doesn't even have to do as much with drinking or not drinking but just being grounded and comfortable and quiet in my head mm-hmm. so that I have mm-hmm. that space and Certainly, I couldn't be grounded and comfortable and quiet in my head if I were drinking. Um, but it's just a willingness now that has emerged as a result of me just turning the volume down on so many ways I spread myself thin. And it's it's a real gift. It really is. So you mentioned spreading yourself thin. With your new business, have you had to actively choose or set up some kind of um, – structures or limits for yourself to keep yourself in check because I'm just going to guess that you might tend towards workaholism. Uh, yes, a little bit. Yes, no, very much, <laughs> very much. It was probably my biggest fear, quite honestly, in deciding to do something to start my own business again as, a, as opposed to going to sort of get a more structured kind of clock in, clock out job and um, managing my time. And it, it's not because I, I, you know, can't be disciplined and, and work hard. It's because I tend to be I work too hard, um, just as you pointed out. And so I have definitely built some pretty rigid structure around how I manage my day, but also the pace at which I build the business. I mean, I am choosing to endure some financial hardship in order to have the pace of my life be 
measured and sane and balanced and, you know, be very careful about which projects I choose and, and not trying to, uh, that world domination problem I have, I feel it creeping in and sort of tapping at the back window all the time. But I, I really have stuck true to the fact that if I'm taking on more business than I can do in a, you know, eight to nine hour a day, then it's too much. And I, when I'm done, I'm done. I, I need to be fully present for myself first, you know, building that sort of me time, which is not pedicures and bubble baths. It's just sort of quiet meditation and contemplation and um, build that first. And, and then subsequent to that, I'm, I'm excited and fully present for my kids and my husband and the things that people that need me. Something you said to me a long time ago rang through my head this weekend right at the right time. And maybe because I knew I was going to be speaking with you today, you mm-hmm. know, you were you were in my thoughts already, but uh, I want to share this with you and then see if it comes back to you in your own life as well, if it's something you think of a lot. But one time we had – it was on, on air, it was on the show, and, and you shared something you'd learned in a meeting, which was letting go of your story and mm. how we – we tell ourselves this story, and if you say, oh, what's the neighborhood like? And I say, well, and I start to launch into some story about my neighbor, you know, and, mm-hmm. and you know, you almost go into rope because I'm setting up for you what, how I'm right and they're wrong, you know, and it's not uh, even what oh. you asked me. But, you know, we go into these rote stories or did you have a happy childhood? Well, let me mm-hmm. tell you. Yeah. <laughs> and, Absolutely. Um, we we get the, these really fuel our our addiction and our our unhealthy you know mm-hmm. cap, coping skills and everything. So that was really revelatory for me when I learned learned that idea because right away I knew I knew something I was doing in my own life how I was using story to stay mad at people mm-hmm. who I kind of wanted to be mad at so that I would stay justified. Anyway, yeah. this weekend my son got married. And I did not line up enough help. I just simply didn't. I, uh, I, looking back on it, you know, I ended up doing too much myself. And I know that I expected people would see me, you know, busting dishes and loading the presents and taking out the centerpieces and, and that they would help. And they didn't, mm-hmm. you know, they were busy dancing and having a good time and, and, um, and I was working myself up to a story, and I had to, and I was kind of like almost, almost rehearsing it, like, like kind of like a Facebook status, you know? I don't know if mm-hmm. you've yeah. ever caught yeah, yourself doing that, yeah. where you're like in traffic and you're thinking of the perfect tweet or Facebook status to, uh, to let everyone know what a terrible day you're having. Anyway, I was kind of working up to that, and I thought of you and of that, you know, letting go of the stories, and I thought I'm going to let go of the story before it even starts. And I'm going to just tell myself, yeah, and before I start, you know, making an inventory of all the people that are not helping me and what they're all doing instead, I'm going to just say to myself, I didn't line up enough help. And it was Mm -hmm. wrong to expect people to just jump in without being asked. And that's on me. That's and, impressive. Um, wow, nothing feels better than righteous indignation. That's a good one. That's a I good know. one to sort of wallow in and write the post about, you know, like think about how you're going to, you know, show everybody the error of their ways. So that's a that's a tough one to catch before it really gets rolling. It is. I had forgotten about that conversation, but it does apply in so many circumstances. It's insane. It's really because it's that's a congratulations on your son's wedding, by the way. It's so exciting. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's a really good example of how those things get a life of their own, and you know it's hard. It becomes harder and harder to see our own participation and how that mm-hmm. got that way. Yeah. Mhm. Mhm. And so, what are some of the tools or some of the gems that that stay relevant for you in your life these days? What are some things that come into your head lately that that you're working on or that you keep written on the palm of your hand? <laughs> Yeah, it's a lot of what I find um, really helpful for me now, and this is definitely applies to my recovery and just things in general. Is I've been doing a lot of work around mindfulness and awareness, and um, just 
taking those precious pauses in, you know, internal pauses, external pauses, and just being very almost deliberate about the choices I make, the speed at which I make them, how, you know, not if I'm feeling sort of like overwhelmed or rushed or that something isn't happening fast enough, like I'm learning to have sort of warning, internal warning signs that can say to me, oh, wait a minute, this is, you may not know exactly what's wrong yet, but you need to just take a breath, take a breath, take a breath. And it's a lot of DBT, the dialectical behavioral therapy skills that I employ both in my recovery and in my day-to-day life, sort of like check the facts, Ellie. And if you feel like overworking right now, maybe what you need to do is, is do the opposite action, like go for a walk instead. You know, I'm, I'm trying to sort of to, to very mindfully evaluate my responses to things, the feelings I have around those responses, like if how long something stays in my head as a thing rolling around and, you know, is this something I really need to act on or is this something that I'm overinflating to get some sort of kick out of in a way that I don't understand or, and it's, it's a, it's basically the opposite of the way my brain naturally works. I, I just don't, I'm not somebody who I, I'm very impulsive and I like speed and chaos and, there's a big part of getting sober that was hard for me and I missed the sneaking and I missed the, you know, the giant knots I had to untangle every day. And when I was in those knots and when I was sneaking, it was the worst thing in the world. But I realized there was an element to that chaos that I, I got a rush out of. So I'm, you know, like I loved having too many emails to answer and I loved having, you know, a, at one point, I had three plates spinning. I had a direct sales business, so I had the you know the bubble hour, and I had my regular job. I mean, it was way too much, and I was happy as a clam, is what I told myself. So that's the checking the story element of what you just shared that really resonated with me. That like you might be telling yourself these things that are true, but if you don't take those mindful moments, if you're not really checking in with yourself in some difficult and uncomfortable ways, then you're not growing. And I know for a fact, if I wasn't putting a daily practice of that into play, that it's very easy for me to first slip into the old thinking habit patterns that slips into the old behavior patterns. And that leads me to a drink. And it's happened three or four times now over the course of the last 10, 11 years, I got first got sober in 2007, where when I finally stopped and really dissected each relapse I had had and the, the thoughts and events and the feelings that preceded that it's the exact same every time different logistics different players different situations but the feelings and the reactions are and the my participation in it is exactly the same and the biggest tool I can find because it's it's scary to feel like you don't fully understand your own brain you know I don't fully trust my own instincts all the time or I don't really always trust my logic because I'm always I'm always gunning for something um, that is mindfulness, is to stop and sort of cultivate that gentle observer about myself and have some self-compassion while I do it. It's not another reason to beat myself up. It's another reason to be kind to myself and spare myself that sort of domino effect of how these things accumulate and how, you know, maybe just this once I could get a second job and things will work out okay. And then all of a sudden, I'm a year later, and I have a drink in my hand, and I don't understand why. You know, I don't mm-hmm. want to get in a situation in my life again where I'm drinking and I don't understand why. You know, I, I'm trying as best I can to have the ability to have some foresight into what's happening in my internal landscape. So what does that mindfulness look like then? If I'm picturing you, like, I'm trying to picture you on a meditation <laughs> cushion with incense burning and, like, a a T-shirt with an elephant on it. <laughs> Is oh, it, like, full-on meditation? Or are you just taking a few deep breaths? <laughs> no, sometimes... <laughs> It's like do a menial chore, you know, wash the dishes. Or uh, oftentimes it involves um, stillness of some kind. Like you're, I'm going to either, a lot of of reading. I mean, it sounds crazy, but like I'll pick up a book that I'm only sort of semi-interested in and fool myself that I'm reading it. And what I find is I put the book down and I close my eyes and I just sort of breathe for a little while. It's not like a mountaintop lotus position sort of mantra repeating quietness. It's just a allowing myself to observe what 
you know, how does my stomach feel? How does my head feel? How do, what are, are the thoughts racy or are they not racy? Am I, you know, am I feeling anxious and I'm not aware of it? It's just, a, it's like a check-in. And I, I could do it in the car, driving places when there's nothing else I can be doing, or I can stop myself when I feel myself gearing up and force myself to go sit outside or take the dog for a walk or, you know, just sit in my bedroom in front of the fan on a hot day and don't pick up a book or a phone or anything. Just be. It's profoundly uncomfortable for me. It really is not something I enjoy particularly, but I feel better when I'm practicing that because I'm aware of my place in my own self better. I don't know if that even makes sense, but it's, it's, a, it's a literally just a pause of any kind where I'm not serving anybody else. I'm not gunning for anything. I'm not aiming towards anything. I'm literally just being. And it's hard. Do you find yourself doing that multiple times a day then? When things are really stressful, yes. Where I'm not so great at doing it is actually when things are sort of calm in general. Um, I can sort of be lulled into a sense of like, well, everything's calm, so I must be doing something right. Um, but my life has been pretty stressful for the last year and a half, so there's, and there's been a lot of things some pretty serious things happening that are outside my control with people that I love very much. Um, and, you know, and one of them is one of my children has been struggling in a really difficult way. And so there's a lot I can't do for that. And there's a lot of wishing I could do more for that. And so I need that ability to remind, you know, to be kind to myself for a minute. Sometimes it feels like sitting with myself and giving the kind of advice I'd give my best friend to me. And a lot of times it also involves checking in with my best friend or, you know, Mandy or somebody and saying, listen, I, I need a, you know, this is what I'm thinking. Give me a reality check on all of this. Um, but it's my, my former responses, especially if somebody I love is suffering or struggling in some way, is to turn the volume way up, turn the speed way up, throw my red cape on and zoom in, start a movement, start a foundation, do, you know, just action, action, action of, of some movement just doing 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 um and it makes me feel like i'm doing something but it doesn't ultimately change the outcome of it and it it burns me out mm-hmm. so i'm trying and really to, in a lot of ways it takes you away from the person who needs you too right it does especially it when does. it's our kids because yeah. i i feel for you my heart goes out to you and, and to your loved one as well because it really is so difficult to see someone hurting and to just hold space for their pain and to be there for them, but you, you know, you can't fix it for them. That's, that is a really uncomfortable feeling. And if I were still drinking, I would definitely try and drink that away. Um, Yeah. And it, it it, it wouldn't help. (laughs) It doesn't help. And it can, it, it gives me the illusion of not caring or the, you know, the numbing effect of that. I think for a long time in my recovery, I didn't want to drink, but I, desperately wanted to escape it was a very weird Mm -hmm. place to be and I realized in time that the person I was trying to escape from was me and that's (laughs) the only way I knew how to do it so and there you were in my mind I was never good enough or I wasn't you know so I think that you know when I have a loved one who's suffering or struggling I what I'm not really feeling anymore which I used to just sort of automatically is just I need to escape from this this is too much I can't handle this when I do feel that way, I know that I'm not taking that space for myself enough because I'm burned out or overwrought. Um, and just sitting with the powerlessness of some situations or the fear, you know, just I'm afraid for this person and I, you know, just need to hold hold that space for that emotion because if I avoid it, it's going to bite me some other way later. And I need, I need to go through it, not around it. But the urge to totally just switch myself off whether you know that's through drinking or any other means is getting quieter now because there's just more room i think you know that's really that saying something because honestly i feel like it sounds it, like sort of spooky but i hope i explained it in a way that like doesn't <laughs> no it does make sense and i i'm i'm glad you talked about that because you, you did hit a low bottom and yeah. you did have a lot of pain and a lot of old stuff to kind of work through. And, like, I'm trying to picture you 
being mind, like even hearing you say mindfulness, I just smile mm-hmm. every time you say it. Because I'm weird. like, ah, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that is so awesome. That's a, that's the thing that I love about um, about recovery groups in general. You know, whether it's going to a twelve step meeting or to an annual retreat or just getting together with sober friends that I don't get to see that often, is mm-hmm. that. Every time, you know, it's these people you love and they're all the same. And yet, because recovery is about always kind of healing and nurturing yourself, and and it also means that everybody is a little farther down that path every time you see them. And it's all, right. sometimes we're a little backwards. Sometimes we, you know, we move backwards down the path. But yeah, it, yeah. it's like we're all working on it and, and we're all like, maybe have healed one part and are working on something different the next time. And I think that's really cool. So I'm glad you talked about that. And oh, and it's neat to to know that you've like moved through some of that old junk and got to this new place. I mean, even to be in a new relationship mm-hmm. and starting from scratch and yeah. to be in a relationship with another person in recovery. I mean, you've built a whole new foundation and brought and, and starting from Mm-hmm. Uh, your healed selves, right? Or your selves in your sober selves, I guess, you know, starting yeah. there. I'd have yeah. to imagine that's a, a stronger foundation or that feels that you feel really grounded in that relationship. Does I it do. feel different? I do. You? Yeah. Thank you for putting it so concisely and accurately. Yeah. It's it's, it's definitely something that I didn't expect to be. I that It was, came out of the blue, but it. Um, what I'm also really started listening to and being more receptive to is that, it, you know, it's, when I'm trying to like get my will and stuff that square peg in that round hole, and I think I know how it should be, I'm I'm almost always wrong. But then if I remain open and and receptive to the things that come my way and take a few risks here and there with a lot of careful consideration, like the right people are coming to me, they're showing up and they're um, enriching my life in ways I couldn't have imagined. And I keep that in check too. I sort of think, well, this this is as of right now and today, this is a really a beautiful thing. Like I'm not, there's no, it's a, again, we sort of have a theme here going of letting go of the story. There's no story around any parts of my life anymore. You know, I'm not, this business is going to be, you know, 50 employees and make $10 million in 10 years. I don't have business plans for my life. I don't have personal blueprints for my life. I don't, I'm, that's what the mindfulness is helping me do. It's sort of helping me just be content with what's enough in that day. And as a result, it's, it's, you know, the universe is sort of sifting through the the things that were toxic for me almost. It's it's, it's a really beautiful thing. Have you worked with a therapist at all to gain some of this ground and to learn some of these tools? It's interesting. I did work with an amazing therapist for a lot of years, and then she had the absolute nerve to retire on me about two years ago. And <laughs> she irreplaceable in my mind i i have sought out um therapies like the dbt that i mentioned the dialectical behavioral therapies like i've been sort of more kind of like surgical strike about the things that i work on instead of overall talk therapy i'm really interested in skills and tools that help me today you know i've sort of beat my story to myself to death and I, I don't even like starting with a new therapist because they're reliant on my version of my life and I never really fully trust it so I like <laughs> really sort of tool oriented CBT and DVT and the mindfulness practice and the things that are sort of like holistic you know they, they look at the mind body spirit all together um, I'm very interested also in people professionals that are knowledgeable about both addiction and mental health because I believe you know, I, I had a nurse say to me years ago, and I said that I think I might need to um, get my mental health in order before I can get my addiction in order. She said, oh, honey, addiction is a mental health condition, you know, that this is all part of a whole. And I can't put my drinking and my alcoholism over there and my mental health over here and my work over here and my family over here. It's it's all fluid. And um, so the therapies that I do now really help me sort of bring all those elements in a really holistic way together and see them as all part of one instead of separate things to be managed, which is sort of how I treated them before. So dialectical behavioral therapy, as I understand it, is, is I have a friend who's used that as a healing tool for uh, 
borderline personality disorder. Yes. And yes. she found it very, very effective in helping her uh, regulate emotions. And we haven't talked a lot about it on the show, but my understanding of it is it's it's all about seeing the world less in black and white and more mm-hmm. of the gray in between. Is that how you explain it? What does it look yeah, like for you? Yeah, definitely. And I think the reason why that it works for borderline personality disorder so well is that one, some of the characteristics of that condition are black and white thinking, impulsivity, um, you know, sensi- hypersensitivity, hypervigilance, and guess what? Those are all really prominent features of addiction as well. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and it's very effective also in helping people with trauma and PTSD and our history of trauma. And for and this is going to be, you know, if any DBT professional hears me say this, my apologies in advance, but this is what it feels like for me is like slowing the tape between something happening to me, my emotions around that, what happens, my thoughts about those emotions, and then how I sort of metabolize that into my life and into my view of the world. So, you know, a, a small example might be I walk by somebody on the street that I know really well and I say hi to them and they don't say hi back. They don't look at me and they keep walking. You know, I, it did be a whole, not just emotion, thought, reaction. I'd have the whole conversation we're going to have a week later all planned out in my head within 30 seconds of her not saying hi to me. Like it's just, it becomes true in my head. And it would lead to some pretty bizarre feeling and sort of impulsive actions. Like, well, next time I see her, I'm going to give her peace of my mind, or I'm not going to, you know. What DBT does is stops me. I say, well, maybe she didn't see me, or maybe she's having a bad day, or, you know, let me just pause for now. And if I'm thinking about this two hours from now, I can just always call her and ask. You know, it it slows me down because I'm able to sort of disseminate the um the speed at which I come to conclusions that lead to behavior. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that is a mm-hmm. really bizarre interpretation of DBT, but that's what it feels like for me. It, it gives me some awareness and mindfulness is a huge part of it. Um, mm-hmm. Some awareness of things that were totally inaccessible to me before. I would be annoyed and I wouldn't know why, or I'd be angry at somebody and I wouldn't even know why. And so I'd have these dr- dramatic responses to things that may or may not be based on things that are true. And that's a very common trait in people who struggle with um, substance problem, issues is that like we, we have, we can carry resentments like, like diamonds and we've polished them up and they're all, we've got them just the way we want them, but who knows how accurate they are and they have dramatic impacts on our life. Mm-hmm. The hypervigilance you talked about, is that hypervigilance for rejection or signs of rejection because that's what it sounded like when you were describing you know that sort of um incident and reaction was like when we when we think things are about us it's that you said hi and that friend rejected you or my sister said this about me and it hurt my feelings and you know those does it all boil down to acceptance and rejection and then giving yourself a lot, the love to not yeah, need probably it probably a lot of it does but hypervigilance also um you know, it's a strong characteristic in people who grew up with alcoholic parents or abusive parents. It's a hyper-awareness of your environment. So I could mm-hmm. perceive something as a slight that somebody else wouldn't even see because I'm taking it all in. I'm at a restaurant, and I see a couple fighting over in the corner, and I'm feeling emotions around that, and I think that the waiter might have snubbed me, and I'm angry about that. And I mean, we're, hyper-vigilant people are just really, really aware of the people in their surroundings and how they're you know, what the emotions are, what the sort of energy is around everything happening all the time. And mm-hmm. it's easy to do it innately and not even realize that you're the kind of person who is like that, um, mm-hmm. you know, who might be very profoundly affected by things that don't have anything to do with you directly, but somehow they weave their way into the way that you feel and into the way that you think and into the way that you see the world. Um, you know, it's, it's it's hard to think of an example off the top of my head, but so hypervigilance ultimately always does come back to sort of self and how you're feeling and how you're responding to the world, but we're taking way too much in, more than we need to, when Mm -hmm. it's sort of kind of, if you could spread it out a little bit and sort of, like if I'm feeling uncomfortable, I'll say, well, let's just sort of check the facts. What's really making me feel uncomfortable? Oh, well, that kid over there is crying and no one's paying attention to him. But otherwise, I might just chuck that feeling all into anxiety and just feel anxious, and I don't know why. And anxiety yeah. can lead me 
to a drink. So it's like really drilling down into the details of, of what I'm allowing into my, my space, my mental space, my personal space, my relationships. Um, because I've, it's very hard. I'm very porous and very absorbent. And if, when you're taking so much in all the time, it becomes really hard to figure out what's really happening. It's noisy in there. You know, it's hard to see it all. Uh, you are just you. You are just hitting home with me with that description. I, I, oh. I lived there for a lot of years, and yeah. it's really yeah. nice to get a break from that. I still, if I'm tired. Or if I'm nervous about something, I'll slip back into that. Um, yeah. And I, I feel like, you know, a lot of our listeners are probably feeling that resonate too in, in hearing that concept and just just calling yourself out on it when you're feeling that way and saying, knowing that this isn't true. This is a, this is a common reaction to yeah. picking in too much or maybe feeling unsafe in the past or, I don't know. I, you know, I thought for a long time, Ellie, that I was – that I was a very considerate person. That's what I thought. Mm-hmm. I would say mm-hmm. I'm just very considerate. I just worry about other people, and and you know I'm a high capacity person. I can do a lot of things, and I'm like I I um, played it up in my head as a positive thing because mm-hmm. in it, there's a lot of payout for it, right? There's a lot of yeah. payout. I mean, not only do you get to tell yourself that you're sort of better than everyone else because you're you're like seeing all these things that need doing before anyone else does, but mm-hmm. then you also get to console yourself with whatever your indulgence yeah. of choice is, whether it's ice cream lately yeah. or alcohol or before, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. it's kind of a it's kind of a um a a tempting thing to fall it's a tempting pattern to fall back into. So how do you how do you find that you draw the line then between um being considerate or being um, aware or hardworking or watching out for your kids, like what, how do you stay sort of on the right side of that? Oh, it's a constant balancing act. And if I get it right a third of the time, I'm, I'm doing great. You know, it's um, <laughs> usually I know it's too much one side or the other because I'm in some kind of pain or discomfort. You know, it's, it's right. kind of like, but I feel that electric shock sooner than I used to. Like I used to, you know, if you sort of think of it as like you're walking down a train track and each rail is electrified, you know, I, I can, I, I can drift between the two rails more than I used to without getting shocked. Like I used to have to have a drink in my hand and be on my way to detox before I realized that, wow, maybe there's, you know, things that I'm, that are out of balance here. Um, And when it, when it comes to sort of that balance between, I don't know, being considerate and empathic and helpful and compassionate and also, you know, taking care of myself and the, my business and my children and, like, knowing if I'm sort of divvying up my internal space the correct way. Is that sort of what you're getting at? Like, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's a lot of – it's like it's boundaries, really, is what it is. And this is going to mm-hmm. sound sort of tongue-in-cheek, but it's truly not. If it's making me uncomfortable, it's probably the right choice. Like if somebody asked me to do something and I feel that sort of overwhelming sense of, oh, my God, if I did this, it would help so many people and it would just, you know, it would really be important to the town or whatever. And I, you know, and I would sort of look at all the external reasons first and sort of talk myself into it. If saying yes was easy to that and no was hard, then no was probably the right answer. Like it does sound really flip. It doesn't mean I always pick the uncomfortable response response whether it's external or internal but i i look at it really carefully because the easy path for me is usually the unhealthy one it just is Mm -hmm. i have a knack for finding the quickest way from point a to point b and um (laughs) so when i when i think to myself wow you know i I don't really feel like saying no to that well why don't i want to say no to that well because i don't want to disappoint them i don't want to let the town down i don't want to let so you know i if all of the reasons why i um, don't want to say no to them have to do with other people, then the answer should be no. Or, you know, boundaries with my kids can be challenging for me because my daughter is getting older and I'm trying to teach her skills like resiliency and you got to hear no and you've got to step up and get responsibility. And, you know, the, the boundaries between my daughter and I can get a little blurred and I carry a lot of guilt from my past. And so sometimes I sort of overextend and, and 
enable and, uh, you know, I'm subconsciously making up for a lot of stuff with her. And so being able to sort of pick what feels selfish, you know, like sort of it feels like, wow, I'm being a little hard on her. I'm being a little selfish on her or she's going to be really sad when I don't show up for that or I say no to this. And um, without even thinking before, I would just take the easiest route for everybody else. You know, I would just do whatever Mm -hmm. kept everybody happy. And now I stop it. I think, yeah, I I could do that, but at what expense to me? And um, since my natural inclination is to please other people, if it's uncomfortable for me to choose a different path, that's the one I look the hardest at. (laughs) You know, just, is this good for me? Is this good for, you know, my values? Is this good for my sanity, my peace of mind, my time, my pocketbook, all of it. I look at all of it. And I, I give myself like a C minus on that. Like it's not something that I, I do really, really well. But I learn each time I get the shock. I'm like, oh, right, okay, yeah, now, yeah, that's okay. Let's file. You know, I just, I just continuously try. Instead of beating myself up mercilessly, I try to think that, well, what were you supposed to learn from that? Let's figure it out and try harder the next time. Like just a constant series of just making tiny, tiny adjustments all the time. You but know, I love that you say you're giving yourself a C in that because oh, sorry. That's, 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 the temptation is, I love that you're sort of giving yourself, like you're acknowledging that it's a work in progress because I think sometimes it's tempting for us to like learn a lesson and then, um, you know, we're, we're just like, we feel like we've got it because we've learned it, but it doesn't mean we always do it, right? I mean, Oh, we, and it's we, my favorite we, thing to do. Like, I, I, I'll start a whole <laughs> blog around a topic that I don't do in my own life. <laughs> like, I, will, I can talk, I can, oh, you know, I can explain things pretty well, but it's, the, again, it's the putting things into practice that becomes hard. Right. It's, you know, and I yeah. really pay attention to uncomfortable feelings because they're almost always telling me something I need to hear. I'm going to tell you something I love about being sober, and and, uh, and then I'm going to ask you about something you love about being sober, just anything. So I'll tell you the thing I've really loved lately is that I have made a ton of mistakes in the last week. I left the barbecue on overnight, and I, you know, I just just have screwed up a million things, you know. at work, well, I, I'm retired, but I still do a little bit of work. I just, I just have screwed up a lot of stuff, you know. And you know what I love about being sober is that I never, I just, I can say, oh, I made a mistake. I just yeah. made a mistake. That was dumb. I made a mistake. And it's never yeah. like some, oh, I'm a terrible person. I was drunk. I was because oh, I'm drinking. I get I'm that. my brain I, and all that. Yeah, I do. That's what yeah. I love about being sober. That's <laughs> awesome. What a great example. Oh boy. All right. Um, your turn. This is this gonna. I don't know. This is gonna, man, I'm not even gonna. I won't preface it. Everybody can make their own opinion. Um, I love that I basically don't know how to be fake anymore. Like I <laughs> was hardly ever awkward before, and I don't. This to me again. It's like there's none of these are possible if I was drinking. So this is kind of an evolution of my recovery answer. But because I was really sick in a lot of ways even though I wasn't drinking for a long time and so what I'm really grateful for now is the sort of evolution of being able to like if I find myself stumbling in a conversation or or I don't know doing something that's outwardly sort of stupid or humiliating or embarrassing two things happen one I just roll with it like I it doesn't necessarily translate to me feeling badly about myself anymore and I don't know how to fake it I don't know how to like sort of gloss over stuff or I'm not even very good at small talk anymore to be honest like I just I just my currency is is authenticity in myself you know I just I I don't I don't switch much about myself depending on my environment I mean everybody has to to a certain degree you can't be exactly who you are at home at work and things like that but it is becoming increasingly, increasingly difficult for me to even summon that up. And I'm really, really grateful for that because that's not my doing. That's just, you know, the progress of hard work and and growth, I think, and a little dash of the universe lending me a hand. I love it. I love it. Thank you yeah. so much for being well, here. Thank you for taking this hour to Thank you to for chat. having me. It's so it. good to hear your voice. 
I can't believe Likewise. 50 minutes is gone already. <laughs> oh, it always says you could do this for six more hours and not even notice. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Um, but my dog would start to whine for sure after the next hour because it's time to take her on her walk. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. She's been pretty good, actually. She doesn't She doesn't get as many cameos on the bubble hours she used to. She's yeah, pretty unexpectedly, days, there so. might be a few meows heard in the background of this one. That's the surprising animal I had to kick out of the room tonight with my cat. So, <laughs> so far, so good. And. And there's a lot of you, a lot of old episodes with you, like whispering at your kids. Because how old were they when you started? The oh, podcast? they were young. Oh, yeah, yeah, they were. Um, yeah, probably six and uh, nine, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so if you, if you go back in the archives, you, you probably would find it cute, Ellie, to listen to some old ones and <laughs> hear them be like, <laughs> yeah, little voices yeah, in the background. <laughs> Uh, that's what makes it so special. But anyways, well, thank you so much. Thanks for being here, and um, and thank you for you know I'm I want to say thank you for all of the things that you started, but also thank you for the example that you set in listening to your heart and doing the right thing for yourself and pulling back when it was time to do that, because well, I feel you. like that is an important lesson in itself, and um, and it certainly you know. I think it, it's helpful to a lot of us to just take note of that as well, too. So thank you, Ellie. Oh, you're kind to say so. Thanks, Jean. I appreciate it. And I'm really grateful to have been on the show. Thank you. It was it was good. It was great to talk to you and to just, you know, touch base with old times. And I don't feel wistful or possessive or weird about it. I just feel really grateful that it's out there and that it exists. So thank you. Uh, thanks for your blessing on keeping it going because it's it's. Uh, it's something I love to do, but also I can. I'll show you the stats. I'll tell you the stats while the music's playing. I'll put you in the green room and tell you. <laughs> but there are just there's just so many people being helped by this podcast and other ones like it. And um and I just I'm really grateful that that it's still going and that you got it going and and have have um handed over the torch. So thank you for everything, yeah. Allie. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed hearing this wonderful voice from this amazing woman. And um, if you want to send a message to Ellie, email it to me, thebubblehour at gmail.com, and I will make sure she gets it. Your words of thanks are greatly appreciated. That's all for this week, everyone. Until next time, take good care. I own it. I didn't. Not proud, but that was me. And the one who matters most can always be